You're listening to a podcast from Spencer Poetry and Performance, a collaboration between the International Spencer Society and Shakespeare's Globe. The conference took place at Shakespeare's Globe on the 12th and 13th of June, 2017. This podcast features a recording of Panel 1, Poetry, Dialogue and Performance. The discussants were Bridget Escombe from Queen Mary University of London, Emma Smith from the University of Oxford, and Will West from Northwestern University. The facilitator was Farah Karam Cooper from Shakespeare's Globe. My job really is just to facilitate this discussion. I'll be really clear in that this is really meant to be focused on, on the performativity of Spencer's language. But before we start, I want to introduce uh, our panel today. So we have Will West, Emma Smith, Richard Eskimo, and then we have our two actors, Matthew Foster and Fran Marshall. Um, so uh, what we're going to do is I'm, I'm going to do a short intro, and then uh, each of our panelists are going to talk for about five to eight minutes, and then we'll have what we're calling the pivot readings uh, from our actors, and then we'll come back and we'll have a discussion, and then we'll open it out uh, to you guys to get your thoughts. Um, the purpose of this particular panel this morning is really to consider the relationship between Spencer's poetry and dramatic performance. How do we trace the way Spencer's poetic practice can, in W.B. Worthen's words, afford a legible performance? One of the overarching questions of the entire symposium is what is Spencer's performance value? And also, to what extent will hearing Spencer's poetry recited out loud open up new ways of considering how he might have influenced playwriting in the late 16th century? What will happen to Spencer's work when we hear it embodied with inflections of voice and movement. What this session will do is consider the ways in which Spencer's work may contain a kind of dramatic imagination. The extracts chosen purposely highlight the muscularity of the verse, the orality or the sonic texture of Spencer's dialogue with its use of dialect and repetition. And it will consider whether detailed descriptions enable a kind of dramatic engagement with his work or does it indicate, rather, the limitations of performance itself, as Bridget Eskimo is probably going to talk about a bit, uh, suggesting that poetry can actually achieve more uh, than theater? Uh, that's a controversial question in these parts. Uh, so uh, I'll hand over now to our panelists. The first speaker is going to be Will West. All right, thank you. For, um, and also thank you, Jane and Tiffany and Stephanie, um, for setting this up and organizing this. Um, we're giving these short little introductions, and mine is very much in the form of an unframed set of reflections, but, um, but hopefully they can, I can open up some terms that we might start thinking about performance and Spencer uh, with. Um, the first thing that I wanted to, to just open as a question, so I'm not really going to be advancing any pieces, right? I'm going to be sort of setting up some, some problems that I see. Um, as, as we go forward with this. Um, the, the first one is that um, it seems to me that Spencer's poetry is um, particularly graphic in character. Um, and he, I don't mean to set up the graphic or the textual as sort of the other of performance, but it does seem like those are useful things to pit against each other as we think about what's the nature of Spencer's performance and what's the nature of, of poetry. Um, by graphic, I mean two things. 
Um, one is sort of historical contingencies of writing that, that pertain to Spencer's poetry. Um, it is to say, that is, it's written poetry rather than orally composed poetry. It is poetry that's designed to be read um, rather than uh, read aloud or enacted. Um, it uh, it is a, comes from a tradition of written poetry. Um, although, interestingly, the traditions in which Spencer's writing are often traditions of writing that represent themselves in one or more ways as spoken or sung or performed, right? So, um, eclogues imagine themselves as kinds of songs, even though they're a, they're a, a deeply written form. Um, uh, so that's one thing I want to think about in, in, as we think about Spencer. Um, also, um, I mean graphic in another sense, too, which is sort of following on um, what uh, Jacques Derrida originally called grammatology, right? There's certain characteristics that we might ascribe to writing, and these also seem to be deeply featured in Spencer's poetry. Um, these are things like uh, a sense of fixity, uh, a sense of archivability, um, perhaps, um, a, a, an attention to immediacy. What is the ground? What is the base through which poetry is transmitted? Um, uh, absence or decontextualization. These are all also, I think, particularly characteristic of Spencer's poetry. And I say particularly characteristic because it seems to me that, that um, some of these uh, written features, these graphic features of Spencer's poetry, are sort of tacit. It, they come from the tradition in which he works. But it also seems to me that Spencer's very, very interesting in calling attention to the graphic nature of a lot of his poetry. And I think here you can think about um, the low-hanging fruit here is something like Shepherd's Calendar, right, which um, has the, the glosses attached and um, uh, mottos and other sort of things that, that really are, are graphic features. It also has speech prefixes which lean towards drama but are features of written drama, right? Printed drama. Um, uh, so both, both those, those senses of graphic, I think, are, are, are important to, to bear in mind as we, as we look at Spencer's poetry and think about performance. Um, the second thing is that it seems to me that uh, while Spencer's poetry is sort of markedly graphic, um, it also contains a number of hinges that help us transition to some kind of uh, at least sense of the potentialities of performance in his poetry. Um, and hinges might be things like the speech prefixes in Shepherd's Calendar, for instance. Uh, they might be representations of pageantry, right, which is also largely featured in Fairy Queen and, and elsewhere. Um, the potentialities of performance, of course, is that's the kind of $64,000 question for us today and tomorrow, right? What are those potentialities? And let me just throw a couple out that um, people who've, who've been, who think about performance in other contexts have thought about as, as being somehow important to performance. Um, and we can think about the ways in which Spencer's poetry uh, makes use of these potentialities. Uh, one is a sense of, of enactment or execution. Performance is something that has to happen, that uh, has to take place, has to take time. Um, that means that it can also be interrupted. Um, Suzanne Wofford has written about this, the importance of a performance being interrupted in Spencer's uh, poetry. Um, others include uh, aspects of embodiment. Um, it seems to me that in Spencer we have two, two ways of uh, Spencer deploys embodiment in two sort of ways, speaking very broadly. One is he calls attention to the, the body of the text, the ground in which his poems are transmitted. Um, and the other one is that he often uh, is deeply invested in the visual appearance or the shape of, of, uh, of the physical bodies he's writing about. So these are two sort of ways in which embodiment is called up 
um, in, in Spencer's poetry, speaking very largely. Another, another aspect is personation, what an Elizabethan might have called personation, this taking on of a different identity or a different persona. Um, here we can think about Spencer taking on the persona of Colin Clout, voicing Colin Clout. Um, you could say that uh, narrative fiction is always partly about personation as, as you put forward different identities. Um, those are all sort of one set of related strands. Here's a second strand that we might think about uh, as we ask, what are some of the potentialities of performance that one could see in poetry? Um, that's uh, an insistence on, on demonstration or display or visuality on appearance. Um, and that, I think, is, is evident in a lot of Spencer's poetry. And then the third one, the third strand I'd like to just look at or think about is something that um, you could call responsiveness or responsibility in writing, and that is um, sensitivity to a context, even if that context has to be constructed, right? And I think in Spencer we see a range of things. There's sometimes certain sorts of beliefs, understandings, knowledges, uh, per, uh, circumstances are presumed, I think, in different parts of Spencer's poetry. In other parts of Spencer's poetry, he's at, at pains to give us contexts within which to understand what he's writing. There are also, as with writing, there are also some specific historical um, types of, of performance that Spencer calls up in his, in his poetry. And this is another sort of angle on how to think about performance in poetry that um, seems, in kind of the simplest sense, not to be performance, right? It's, it seems to be a book that sits in front of you. There's a long tradition of multiple strands of classical performance that Spencer is interested, obviously. Um, pastoral, which imagines itself as a kind of a shepherd's song, often narrates songs, song contests, um, things like that. There's the whole tradition of epic, which is, while um, it, it is uh, from Virgil onwards, at least, um, it's, uh, it's a written form, it continually imagines itself as something that is to be performed, right? even as people are reading it out of books. Uh, Virgil thinks of himself as singing, Spencer thinks of himself as singing. There's comedy, a, a, a comic strain in Spencer, too. I don't mean funny, but classical comedy, right? The letter where Gabriel Harvey mentions these nine comedies that Spencer supposedly wrote, believe that if you will. But in any case, there's, there's certainly an idea of classical comedy that, that is alive to Spencer, a kind of performance that could be accessed through comedy. Um, public pageantry, right? The, the kinds of public displays, city entries, royal entries, parades. These are often allegorical. Um, it's long been, been speculated that this, this form of allegory has some kind of impact on Spencer's allegorical writing. Um, and then another one that um, I think we ought to at least think about is the, the oral traditions, which are equally, um, they're not quite as ambiguously suspended between textuality and performance as the traditions in England, but the Irish traditions of the Philid and the Olav, uh, the Bards, who uh, were still, in fact, performing poetry as well as writing it down, um, and that Spencer at least is curious about it. It's not clear how much he knew about it, but at least he's wondering about those traditions. I see I am running long, but let me, let me, let me float two more things, a couple more things. One is, it seems to me that um, it, we would be, it would be helpful for us to distinguish between performance as we look at Spencer's poetry and representations of performance. Um, I think it's hard... It's, probably not something we can do here to talk about the actual conditions under which Spencer's poetry might have been performed in an early setting. Um, a lot of the time we'll be looking at the way Spencer represents performance rather than performances of Spencer. And I think it's just important for us to keep 
to be aware of that, that when Spencer tells us this is the way performance goes, when he shows us the mask of Cupid, this is how a performance works, this may not be how a performance works, this may be how Spencer imagines a performance works, or wishes a performance worked, or something like that. But I think we should keep, I, I think we should be alive to the difference between what is performance and what is a representation of performance. Um, in some ways, I think we could think about Spencer as writing, especially in The Fairy Queen, a kind of an allegory of performance, where The Fairy Queen is so dynamic, it's so, so invested in action and what happens, and yet is, is, uh, is also deeply tied to these textual traditions, which seem to be a kind of an other performance. Um, let me just ask a couple of questions and then finally uh, stop and, and turn it over to Bridget. Um, things that we might answer, thinking about the difference between performance and representations of performance, is to ask, what positions does Spencer take on performance? Um, these could vary, right? But a lot of the time, we'll, I think we may be talking about what does Spencer think performance does? What does Spencer think uh, performance, in what ways does Spencer think his writing is different than performance? In what ways does he think his writing is like performance? Um, what does he think performance is anyway? That's a good question for us to ask ourselves, too. Um, another question, and this is more for the workshop uh, tonight that we'll be doing, is to ask, um, what do we change when we adapt Spencer's writing to performance, when we devise performance from Spencer's writing? Um, and what can we learn from that? Uh, what kind of knowledge is produced by performing this poetry um, rather than reading it in some other way? Um, and what, is, what are those other ways? Uh, and let me end with the thing that comes closest to a thesis, which is that one take that I had as I was preparing this uh, was to think about Spencer's poetry, and to, uh, the marked graphesis of Spencer's poetry, and to ask, to what extent is, uh, can we read Spencer as itself a performance, but a kind of performance of inscription? a way of enacting what it means to write. Uh, and just two things here, I think, two kind of key moments in, in uh, particularly in The Fairy Queen, um, but others of Spencer's texts as well, uh, that we might look at, think about this. Um, his interest in pageant, you know, these parades, the seven deadly sins, things like this, um, as, as um, uh, a figure of thinking about writing. Pageantry as a way of writing a performance that is really a performance of writing, right? Where characters are something like written characters who come out and give you a legend, something to read. The other one is, is his um, interest in the monument, or the monument, but he always spells it monument, um, as a kind of a, a moment at which action is crystallized into writing. And that seems like a kind of a very short way of describing what Spencer means when he talks about a monument is that somehow something happens and then it freezes in a form that becomes legible and remains. And both of those, the pageant and the monument, seem to me to be things, places where we might look at Spencer as performing a kind of writing. Um, I thought I'd actually just step back, remind us um, what we already know, but um, maybe use this as a starting point to think about Spencer's exposure to, to theatre and to drama. And there are two bits that I want to bring out from that. Um, the, the influence of Mulcaster uh, and Merchant Taylors, which I think is, uh, I mean, known, but, but perhaps worth revisiting. And I'm sort of particularly interested in uh, the two Lord Mayor's uh, pageants that Mulcaster writes for in 1561, when Spencer may have just, just started at, at Merchant Taylors, maybe it was just before that, and 1568, um, probably Spencer's last year, uh, at... Um, uh, Newell's uh, funeral, Spencer's the first in the list of the boys to process, which uh, I think Andrew 
as Phil suggested, Matt, that he was the senior boy in the school. It seems quite likely somehow that those boys would have been involved in, particularly the later of the Lord Mayor's pageants, the 1568 one, and I think that uh, echoes what he's saying about um, the sort of pageant dynamic being really crucial to Spencer's uh, writing, much more so, it seems to me, than any other kind of drama, um, uh, and, and the ways, the kind of ekphrastic kind of ways that Spencer develops um, to depict pageant, um, I think are, are really interesting, and you hear one of them then. Then I had a quick look at the Reed volume for Cambridge, uh, Alan Nelson's kind of brilliant uh, volume for uh, Cambridge at the time Spencer's there. And we can see that Cambridge, um, particularly Cambridge colleges, are really actively involved in different kinds of uh, drama all through that period. Ten or twelve Cambridge colleges are, uh, are referenced in Reed as having uh, accounts uh, relating to performance. And we also see Sussex's men, Worcester's men, uh, uh, the Queen's men, uh, all, all in Cambridge more than once during that period. So again, it seems... Um, uh, very likely that Spencer's uh, sort of uh, exposed to these uh, these different forms, but I feel that the, for me at least, and I'm sure that I'm sure my understanding of this will develop over the two days. For me at least, it feels as if the kind of pageant stroke, uh, that kind of declarative mode of of um, university college drama at this point, university drama at this point, or of um, uh, uh, processions or pageants like the Lord Mayor's. Uh, shows these seem more more prominent uh, generically uh, in, in Spencer than other kinds of drama, and I thought maybe to link one of the things we're going to hear is um, uh, part of uh, Gluttony uh, from the Fairy Queen, uh, the, the you know the Seven Deadly Sins, and it's it, if you obviously the Seven Deadly Sins is a really um, you know powerful narrative in lots of forms, but it feels to me as if the availability of that to Spencer is much more dramatic, much more from dramatic texts than anything else. Um, uh, and that's really quite an interesting, uh, gives us quite an interesting place to compare, to compare, compare Spencer's Seven Deadly Sins with Wisdom or the Castle of Perseverance as these kind of me medieval iterations of that, but also maybe with uh, Faustus, with Dr. Faustus. Um, I think it's probably you know, quite an interesting relationship between those texts, and if, as we uh, now feel, perhaps Faustus is an earlier play uh, than that sort of mid early 1590s, maybe, um, maybe there's a more direct influence. But if you look at how um, Marlowe's gluttony uh, speaks by himself, uh, compared to uh, Spencer's, we get some sense of uh, the role of the role of description, the role of kind of self-proclaiming uh, or self-directing, self-embodying figures uh, in, in in Spencer's poetics, um, as opposed to, and, and as opposed to, um, I mean, all all Marlowe's gluttony says is, I eat a lot. <laughs> I mean, there's no, there's, there's sort of no, I mean, it says it three, three or four times, but I mean, there's, there's no real, um, there's, there's no description, of, there's, nobody describes him, there's no, there's no visual component to that. It's an entirely uh, kind of phatic um, so, so, sort of self-diagnosis, this is what I do, I eat, I eat a lot. So it's a curiously sort of empty, empty uh, presentation compared with uh, Spencer's, and that, that's obviously formal in some ways that, that Will, I think, was, was pointing to in some... Uh, in, in some fascinating ways. But I also thought that um, what's so important about The Seven Deadly Sins in, in Dr. Faustus is that it's a, a, a pageant which is supposed to make Faustus think mm. what a bad thing to do, and Faustus 
as there's at the end, you know, how wonderful, you know, kind of br- br- bring it on. And, that, and I wondered if that could help point to, um, uh, put the seven deadly sins in, in Fairy Queen um, into a sort of um, aesthetics of complicity, I think. Uh, we, we understand that really well in thinking about, about stage uh, characters and stage relationships in this period that really you only enjoy bad characters and you only enjoy negative figures and you only enjoy these kind of... Um, uh, the, the stage gives you... Going to, going to a play gives you the licence to um, uh, kind of affiliate across uh, ethical lines or across moral lines. And so it made me wonder whether, um, in some ways, the, the Seven Deadly Sins in, in The Fairy Queen uh, could be seen uh, rather as we've come to look at the Bower of Bliss as a kind of um, moment of aesthetic and ethical uh, conflict uh, somehow uh, that, that may have a particularly uh, theatrical origin or maybe drawing on some of those theatrical uh, experiences. And I just had one uh, last thing that I wanted to say. I mean, um, in some ways I'm sort of a, a, bit, a bit off... Well, of message in, in two ways. I suppose I come from uh, a, a, a dramatic perspective, and so I'm, um, I have to fight not to see these as uh, influenced by drama rather than influencing drama. I mean, I think we always have our lines of uh, mm-hmm. the, the, the lines of narrative that we're, we're most happy to go with. Um, but I did want to say just something a little bit more about, um, uh, and this, this is the second point, a bit off message, this, uh, the, uh, about what Will said about. Um, the Shepherd's Calendar. We're going to hear a great stick and mythic exchange from the Shepherd's Calendar. And I just wanted to amplify a little bit what he said. It seems to me the Shepherd's, the printed Shepherd's Calendar, 1579 and then 1581 and 1583, is just a really, really important document in how drama comes to be presented uh, in, in, in print. Um, it does have those speech prefixes, and in fact the stick and mythic dialogue uh, is the moment when the text breaks into uh, italic, uh, abbreviated speech prefix, short, a uh, full stop, gap, uh, line of line of speech. Uh, whereas elsewhere in the Shepherd's Calendar, the the speech the speaker is centred above above the line, so it breaks into a, a, a form we associate with drama. So it will be easy to say it breaks into dramatic form there, but if you look at the number of um, play texts that are published, that are in print before fifteen seventy nine. I mean, it's really, it's really a handful that hasn't quite been established as a dramatic form. So it seems more that actually the influence is the other way, that the Shepherd's Calendar it doesn't look like a playbook, but in its very careful arrangement of, uh, of typography and the kind of multivocality that that, that signals, uh, it actually informs playbook um, uh, organisation uh, going forward. So I suppose what I wanted to try... Um, to organise my thoughts around was on the one hand reminding us of the kind of influences uh, that Spencer might have uh, taken from different forms of drama but then uh, in, uh, at the end maybe to sort of uh, think forward about uh, in, in print publication particularly but perhaps in other ways too what Spencer might give to uh, that uh, that form. I read uh, Frank McGuinness's Mutability which lots of you know, play about uh, Spencer or about Edmund and Will uh, meeting uh, in, in Ireland. And uh, intrinsic to, what, to how McGuinness sees that is that they are um, unable to recognise that, uh, that, that, the, that they're each the same and they meet at a time when it feels as if they're both kind of 
but burnt out, I mean, that's the phrase that Shakespeare or Will uses um, uh, explicitly. So it's quite interesting to think that maybe the friction between them or between uh, Spencer and Drummond more generally, not just Shakespeare, might have actually been um, the, the start of, of or, uh, a more productive or a more uh, generative kind of conversation. Thank you, Emma, and many thanks to uh, Thara and Tiffany and the organisers of this conference. Uh, I was um, flattered and unnerved to be invited. Um, I'm very much a performance scholar and um, my interests are in performance histories uh, from Shakespeare's period to our own. Um, so reading and rereading the Spencer extracts, um, the, the ones you're about to hear and, uh, and, and other extracts that we, that we read in pre preparation for this day, um, number one, I guess, r reminded me that I feel I was taught Spencer relatively poorly on, on my undergraduate <laughs> degree. Um, because having had now many years in performance scholarship, um, rereading and, and reading for the first time in some cases really excited me. Um, and it started to make me think about how contextual reading for early modern performance, both for our students but also for performance scholars, might be done more closely and, and, and more productively. And how we might, and I think I'm partly of what Emma's just said here, how we might think about audience reception um, of performance in more closely and more productively in terms of what audiences might be, be reading. Um, and certainly I have been, in, in writing this short presentation, um, I've been thinking very much about, well, what happens if I think about this coming first rather than this as well? Now, inevitably, um, seeing, you know, William Paragot's dialogue, I've been thinking about that as drama. Um, but then, um, I guess what that's moved me to think about is, uh, as, 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 Sarah, uh, as Farah suggested I might, um, it's led me to think around, well, what are the affective limitations uh, of, of, of theatre and performance? Um, and, and rather than depressing me, that's, that's really excited me. Um, so um, what I thought that I'd be doing um, is, is, is continually recalling the materiality and the embodied nature of the stage Im image in contrast to the elusive and metaphorical language of poetry. But in fact, um, in, in working towards today, my attention's been repeatedly drawn to the visceral qualities of poetry and the freedom offered by Spencer's poetry to repeat and build an image almost to excess, or at least excess as it might appear on the page to modern readers. Um, and this felt very ironic given my own recent claims <laughs> to the subversive excesses of Shakespeare's theatre. Um, <laughs> So reading Spencer's led me to think anew about the socially, materially and generically produced form and formality of theatre and what it just can't do uh, in terms of evoking the sensual and the somatic. Um, so, for example, the exhortation in Spencer's epithalamium is to pour out wine without restraint or stay. Um, I think this is a, a short extract that you won't hear later, so I'll, I'll just read it if I may. Pour out the wine without restraint or stay. Pour not by cups, but by the belly full. Pour out to all that will, and sprinkle all the posts and walls with wine, that they may sweat and drunken be withal. Um, now, theatre just has to have some practical restraints. You can't really be throwing wine around with all those... Um, all those expensive costumes. Um, and when the, the object of a, of a comparably uh, a styled exhortation is embodied by a dramatic character, and I'm thinking here of Philistrate and Midsummer Night's Dream, 
he gets told to prepare for wedding celebrations in ways that are going to take place off stage, so stir up the Athenian youth to merriment. Um, and he gets to awake uh, what's essentially an, an abstraction, the pert and nimble spirit of mirth. And he certainly doesn't get to throw any wine around. Um, the Athenian youth that are finally stirred up to merriment, Bottom and his actors, are of course hugely entertaining to the offstage audience, if uh, notoriously snootily received by the onstage one. But read alongside Spencer's uh, work, The A Midsummer Night's Dream kept reminding me of the limits of mimesis rather than its exciting excesses. Um, before I leave the epithalamian, I should, I should confess that I'm not particularly familiar with the poetic, poetic tradition um, in its classical form, so perhaps someone here later in, in, in the day or, or the two days can tell me whether the figuration of bride as war trophy is a common one, or one particular to Spencer's offering to his wife, or um, Thesis offering to Hippolyta. Mm -hmm. um, so in comparing the Spencer extract we've been looking at um, with, with the opening of Midsummer Night's Dream, it occurred to me that something that can be read quite simply as an affective device in the poem, comparing something as joyful as bringing one's new bride home with something as superlatively exciting as wartime triumph and victory, can be a deliberate source of discomfort for audiences at, at, at modern productions. And it occurred to me that no matter how dramatically I was thinking about the poetry because of this event, um, the poetry couldn't be made to do awkwardness. I think that that's perhaps something that, that, that theatre can do uh, and that poetry can't. Where, but you might have different ideas. Where Hippolyta um, can be played um, with anything from uh, muted anger to her wooing by Theus's sword uh, to a sort of awkwardness uh, at the opening. Um, I have always seen those kinds of awkward Hippolytas um, as, a, as an understandable feminist imposition, but, but nonetheless an imposition on, on the text in production. But now it occurs to me that Shakespeare has perhaps taken a familiar image, to, so uh, to quote again from the Spencer, bring home the bride again, bring home the triumph of our victory, bring home with you the glory of her gain, and made it potentially uncomfortable by turning it into a piece of backstory that he didn't necessarily have to mention. Hippolyta says, Theseus, I wound thee with my sword and won thy love doing the injuries, but I will wed thee in another key with pomp, with triumph and with revelling. Now, being part of Caesar's triumph is what Cleopatra dies to avoid. Um, and suddenly it reads oddly that Theseus includes the word triumph as part of this other key of wooing he offers Hippolyta. So for me, try not only to think about possible allusions to Spencer in the drama, and of course there's plenty of Romeo and Juliet in the poem as well as the dream, but of affective use, uses of language and the body in both poem and play. This poem feels both extraordinarily sensual and at the same time, of course, entirely celebratory and understandably lacking in the social tension that might be created by triumphing over a bride that's present on stage. So I then read um, the, seventh, uh, the, the Seven Deadly Sins, which, which I had uh, indeed read in the, in the dim and distant part as a student. Uh, and I'm not sure that their visceral powers was quite something that, that we were put in touch with uh, when we read them in a very small dark room uh, with uh, 
the, the gentleman that taught us the, them to us. The, the power of this language to recreate and recall both the, uh, both the kind of pain, sickness, and physical discomfort that early modern readers might have experienced or, or, or witnessed, and create us a kind of hilarity about that. And, right. and following from, from what Emma had said, it, I, I read and read and reread, and each time I read the tone differently. So the disease-ridden bodies of gluttony, electory, and avarice um, felt to me as repulsive as the picture of the old Hamlet's ghost paints for Hamlet of his skin crusting over with poison. Uh, but what I don't tend to think of when watching or reading Ham that scene in Hamlet um, is the link between sin, disease, and pain. Uh, and I know that the ghost says he's in purgatory, um, but, but nevertheless that's so viscerally created for the reader by Spence of a link between sin and disease and pain. Um, and, and I began to think, well, does that echo for Shakespeare's audiences as Hamlet begins to possibly doubt the nature of the ghost? Um, so is the ghost a, a, a thing of sin? Can I trust it? Um, even part of the shepherd's calendar, uh, and here is where I hope might sort of... It, Naive enthusiasm is, is sort of um, refreshing rather than um, irritating, but um, it left me feel slight, left me feeling slightly faint um, as the physical piercing of the heart by the eye beam. I know we've got Eric Langley in the room um, of the beloved um, is described by Peregot and Willie as an arrowhead left in the womb. Um, so let me just find um, the point. Um, Hating to raunch the arrow out, head between the knees, everyone, hey, home, Perigot, I left the head in my heart root. It was a desperate shot. There it rankleth I more and more, hey, ho, the arrow, nay can I find salve for my sore. Um, so the notion of, of thinking about raunching it out, but having to leave it there, um, I mean, I guess the nearest I personally have got to that is a splinter in my finger. Um, and, and, and so perhaps that's a, some kind of historical dis, dis, distance of the modern, uh, uh, modern privilege. Um, but, but nevertheless, um, it really did make me rethink um, Autolycus's opening song, Stroke Speech, very much in the same style, um, as a kind of... And I always enjoy Autolycus. I always wait for Autolycus to come on in, in Winter's Tale. Um, I always enjoy his... Um, his direct address to audience, his playfulness with us. Um, but reading, and I, and I guess, of course, um, the answers to the lover in, in, in the call and, and response of Shepherd's Calendar are occasionally slightly cynical. Um, so it's like, oh yeah, you're as mad as the, the, the sheep that you're, you're, you're looking after, and oh yes, she's, you know, she's a great girl. There's this kind of sense of a, a slight jokey cynicism. But nevertheless, an extraordinary kind of aching and literally aching sincerity of this love that physically affects you. So having read that, to have Autolycus come in and sing, hey, the doxy over the dale, and talk about the springtime being a place where it's great because, you know, they hang their sheets out so I can steal them. Um, and, the, and then the, you know, the daffodil and the, uh, uh, and the birds are really just a backdrop to all my extramarital sex. Um, it really felt like quite a cynical urban version of this. Um, and again, it made me think about reception. So is this a kind of hilarious, enjoyable subversion? Or is this something that Shakespeare's audiences are always somewhat at a distance uh, from because um, the, the Spence poetry is, is so delightful but also so authentically sincere about how love literally makes you feel. 
Um, so I'm going to kind of leave it there in my confusion. Um, but um, what I'm absolutely sure to be doing after the end of this day um, is going back to my students with moments from this poetry and perhaps think, getting them to think more about what it can do and, and what it can't. Thanks very much. Um, so we'll go straight to our reading. So um, Matthew and Frank. So I'm reading uh, first of all the uh, uh, Epithalamion. Is that correct? Let's <laughs> yeah, check that one. <laughs> Ring ye the bells, ye young men of the town, and leave your wanted labours for this day. This day is holy. Do you write it down that ye forever it remember may? This day the sun is in his chiefest height, with Barnaby the bright. From whence declining daily by degrees, he somewhat loseth of his heat and light, when once the crab behind his back he sees. But for this time it ill-ordained was to choose the longest day in all the year, and shortest night, when longest fitter were, yet never day too long, but late would pass. Ring ye the bells to make it wear away, and bonfires make all day, and dance about them, and about them sing, that all the woods may answer, and your echo ring. That all the woods may answer, and your echo ring. Reading the Fairy Queen, the article on the giant. He said that he would all the earth uptake, and all the sea divided each from either. So would he of the fire one balance make, and one of the air, without or wind or weather? Then would he balance heaven and hell together, and all that did within them all contain, of all whose weight he would not miss a feather? And look what surplus did of each remain, he would to his own part restore the same again. For why? He said they all unequal were, and had encroached upon others' share, like as the sea, which plain he showed there, had worn the earth, so did the fire the air, so all the rest did others' parts impair. And so were realms and nations run awry, all which he undertook for to repair, in sort as they were formed anciently, and all things would reduce unto equality. Thou that presumest to weigh the world anew, and all things to an equal to restore, instead of right, me seems great wrong dost show and far above thy forces pitch to soar. For ere thou limit what is less or more in every thing, thou oughtest first to know what was the poise of every part of yore. And look then how much it doth overflow or fail thereof, so much is more than just to trow. For at the first they all created were in goodly measure by their maker's might, and weighed out in balances so near that not a dram was missing of their right, the earth was in the middle centre pight in which it doth immovable abide, hemmed in with waters like a wall in sight, and they with air that not a drop can slide, all which the heavens contain and in their courses guide. Uh, fair Queen, uh, Gluttony. <laughs> and by his side rode loathsome Gluttony, <laughs> deformed creature on a filthy swine. His belly was upblown with luxury. And eke with fatness swollen were his eyes. And like a crape, his neck was long and fine, with which he swallowed up excessive feast. For want whereof poor people oft did pine. And all the way, most like a brutish beast, 
He spewed up his gorge that all did him detest. In green vine leaves he was right fitly clad, for other clothes he could not wear for heat. <laughs> and on his head an ivy garland had, from under which fast trickled down the sweat. Still, as he rode, he somewhat still did eat, <laughs> and, and in his hand did bear a boozing can, of which he sucked so oft that on his seat his drunken course he scarce upholden can, in shape and life more like a monster than a man. Unfit he was for any worldly thing, and eke unable once to stir or go, nor meet to be of counsel to a king whose mind in meat and drink was drowned so, that from his friend he seldom knew his foe. Full of diseases was his carcass blue, and a dry dropsy through his flesh did flow, which by misdiet great daily greater grew. Such one was gluttony, the second of that crew. <laughs> Uh, so this extract's from the Shepherd's Calendar. It fell upon a holly eve. Hey ho, holiday. When holly fathers <laughs> wanted to shrine. Now gimmeth this roundelay. Sitting upon a hill so high. Hey ho, the high hill. The while my flock did feed thereby. The while the shepherd's self did spill. I saw the bouncing belly boat. Hey ho, bonny bell. Tripping <laughs> over the dale alone. She can trip it very well. <laughs> <laughs> well decked in a frock of grey. Hey ho, grey is green. And in a kirtle of green say. The green is for maiden's meat. A chaplet on her head she wore. Hey ho, chaplet. Of <laughs> <laughs> sweet violets therein was stored. She's sweeter than the violet. My sheep did leave their wanted food. Hey ho, silly sheep. <laughs> and gazed on her as they were wood. Wood as he that did them keep. As the bonny lass passed by. Hey ho, bonny lass. <laughs> she roved at me with glancing eye. As clear as the crystal glass. All as the sunny beam so bright. Hey ho, the sunbeam. Glanceth from Phoebus' face forthright. So love into thy heart did stream. Or as the thunder cleaves the clouds. Hey ho, the thunder. Wherein the lightsome levin shrouds. So cleaves thy soul asunder. Or as Dame Cynthia's silver ray. Hey ho, the moonlight. Upon the glittering wave doth play. Such play is a piteous plight. The glance into my heart did glide. Hey ho, the glider. Therewith my soul was sharply gried. Such wounds soon waxen wider. <laughs> um, I guess one of the first things that I want to ask is the actors to talk a little bit about what that felt like. We do a lot of Shakespeare here. Yeah. Um, talk a bit about Spencer's poetry and how it compares, uh, and from a perspective of speaking it, reciting it. For me, it's more like uh, I come from York, and uh, it's more like doing um, uh, mystery plays mm. type, which I've done. Uh, it, just in terms of the description and and the power of the description, mm. that's that feels much more like that kind of sort of. Um, uh, I think it, was it you mentioning pageant pageantry, yeah. like sort of like the um, uh, a bit like the Margaret von Joux pageant, that kind of thing. It, it yeah. sounds very, very 
uh, rich. So it seemed more like that to me initially. Um, it's really easy to read, I will say. Um, there's no doubt about the rhythm. There's no question about it. There's no doubt about where you're hitting, um, which uh, could also be the interesting. I don't know, but it, I don't think it is. I think that that gluttony one just runs and runs, and you can see quite clearly what he's doing. And it's very easy to read. Um, uh, and uh, I picked this up on Saturday um, and don't know it very well. And it's not been difficult to work to, for it just to flow. Mm. So I would say that. Yes, yeah, no, similar. I mean, I've, we've only had it for a couple of days. Um, but it's not too much of a challenge to engage with it. It's, as you say, it's very vivid. Um, and it's very engaging in the way that you sort of, it, it follows quite a natural path in what it's describing and how it builds a picture of, of and how it sort of culminates in this very detailed illustration of what you're talking about. So, I mean, that's really fascinating. I mean, what we had here are some really interesting questions that emerge from your different discussions. Um, obviously, with Bridget, your notion of what are the limitations of theatre in relation to poetry, which is interesting. We may all agree, we might all disagree, I'm not sure. Um, I'm thinking about stage directions in particular, the work that stage directions might do. Um, plays like, uh, or even university plays like um, Lingua, Thomas Tompkins has played, which does a lot of that kind of descriptive work that is happening here. Um, and I'm also interested in what you were saying, Emma, about the, the context of the written text, of the printed dramatic text, um, and sort of setting the precedent for that. Also, the relationship between Faustus and um, Marla and, um, and Spencer's poetry, what comes first, is, is one of those emerged from what you were saying. Um, and Will, of course, the question about what is Spencer's attitude towards performance. Uh, and how how can what how do we read that into his work? So I just wonder if we could just talk a little bit about these questions that emerged. Well, it was so thank you. It was so great to hear them read and and um, just hearing Shepherd's Shepherd's calendar there mm -hmm. absolutely crystallised for me something I've I've been sort of struggling to try and think and and say earlier um, because. The, the willy response, um, it almost feels as though, hearing it read, it feels as though saying, oh, yes, that thing that happens in poetry. Um, so, for, so for Perigot, is this really important thing that's just happened to me for the first time? Is oh, yeah, the silly sheep, the bonnie lass, all those things yeah. that, that you're going to say. Um, and so that really crystallised. For me, the idea that Autolycus is just the cynicism. It's all the yeah. sort of cynicism pulled out uh, of that dialogue. So that was, uh, that was just great to hear for a small point. Yeah, I agree. It was, it was wonderful to hear, hear these voices. One of the things I thought in the, the bit from Shepherd's Calendar that William Perry got is, um, as I listened to the two of you, I, I couldn't help thinking, what would this be like were this in a play? And I thought, well, first of all, it would be a lot shorter, right? There would be, we, we'd do this once, and then somebody would come running in and say, you know, I don't know, uh, look, your beloved has just come in, or the Trojans are attacking or something. <laughs> something something would have to happen, right? And that strikes me as one big difference between the way performance is imagined to take place in Spencer and the way I think we often it often gets staged. Or what would really happen is in a in a stage direction it would say, here the boy sings, right? And we would just have to do that or not, right? And the director would decide to cut that. The other thing I thought is that um, uh, in, in Shepherd's calendar, Spencer has to kind of invent a situation for William Paragot. And if it were a play, we would already know William Paragot and we would know, you know, uh, we, we, would, we would have a sense that, oh, Willie is, is taking the piss out of Paragot or, or whatever, um, or 
is secretly in love with Paragot's beloved. But there would be a thing that would be happening, whereas it's, Spencer has to do a lot more of the heavy lifting right away in the shepherd's calendar, sort of out of nowhere to give us this situation. Or we have to decontextualize and imagine it as a kind of an aesthetic song. Mm-hmm. But the, the orality of that dialogue, mm-hmm. I mean, sure, if there's an expectation, it feels like there should be an expectation on Spencer's part of that being heard, that that sort of the energy that goes into creating that kind of muscularity <clears throat> in verse is wasted energy if it's if it's not heard out loud in some ways. And I can't, I can't sort of get the imaginary play that this would have been part of out of my head, but um, were it to be written for performance, right, you, in, in fact, Willie's part would be less marked in a, in a play script, wouldn't it? Because you'd say, well, Willie's going to do a performance thing at this point, and he's either going to be making fun, or he's going to, whatever Willie is going to be doing, the, the response, you know, hey-ho, green is great, or gray is great, or whatever it is. Um, but in this, we, we, we actually sort of get each of those lines written out in this somewhat mysterious fashion. What does that do when we read it, either aloud or off the page? It's, as you read it, it's got a kind of parodic ritual feel, mm-hmm. hasn't it? It's a catechism or yeah. something, yeah, 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 antiphonic yeah. or something. Um, it's not just as you like it, where I think we probably would get all of it. And right. more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, pastoral is about people sort of talking at enormous length about yeah. things and not very much happening. But you, but you would get it, but, yeah. right? There would be this there would be some kind of changing angle, right? It'd be sort of Orlando and Rosalind having differences of opinion. Yeah, you perhaps, like, yeah. uh, perhaps like as you like it more than I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you do like it. <laughs> lots of cynical, and lots of cynical refrain can just be by you know being close to the audience and. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just um, open it out to the yeah. audience? Yes. One of the things that that hilarious performance, the almost uh, singing match, uh, brought out foregrounded for me are the fictions of performance that are invented in the eclogues that can't really be, in fact, performed. For example, um, the, the lines in the eclogue are imagined as being sung, although we don't have the melody or the music. So that part of the comedy is, is especially with Will, Willie's lines, it would be the equivalent of saying, do wah, do Reciting song, the modern song is. And, uh, and the other part of it, of course, is the fiction that, that it is uh, an extemporaneous performance in which these two singers are competing by uh, composing the lines on the fly, like rap music um, or a rap square off. And I don't know, I can't imagine how that, I guess you could write music and stage it that way, but it would be extraordinarily difficult to capture in, a, in any kind of recitation um, the fiction of performance that Spencer's setting up in that yeah. Stay tuned for the workshop tonight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had a couple of um, comments. This is so interesting. Um, but one which was brought up was by the reading for me was, in my experience, reading Spencer aloud, and I have to say, I don't know that that counts as performance. There's sets of issues we can think about. Um, almost inevitably, brings out the comic quality of aspects of the verse, even in places of pain and suffering. In fact, I was thinking about how there's this strange intersectionality between the comic and the pain. Um, but that's something that um, I find Almost every time I start with students who haven't read the poem, who feel very assaulted by its graphicness, the writing, the spelling, and everything, as soon as I start reading it, they're just like, oh, this is great. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting aspect of Spencer. 
Um, I had a, a comment that I wanted to make about the limits of theater, and just to put in our minds, um, many years ago, Janet Edelman's um, 1973 book on Anthony and Cleopatra talks about the gap of performance versus the metaphorical, and, and the way that the imagination, she thinks, in that play, takes you to a place with the poetry, and you're seeing the bodies on stage that aren't it. So they can be both there, yes. I, I, just to, to sort of throw that out there, but this was really fascinating. Uh, two very quick things. One, just I was very struck by the way that this passage from Epithalamian has ring out ye bells, but then do ye write it down, which kind of gets to your point, I think, about the performance of inscription. And so these aren't imagined as opposite things, they're just the things in a list. So sort of in a way actually collapsing the difference between writing and performing. Uh, it's just like you ring the bells, you make a lot of noise, and you write it down. Uh, so that was one thing. The other thing, Emma, your point about uh, the um, the influence, perhaps, that Shepard's calendar may have had on play texts and the sort of speech prefixes, fascinating. And I, my first thought was, oh well, mask texts also, which include all these glosses, you know, and especially Johnson's. But then I thought, actually, how unlike Johnson's mask texts are from the Shepard's. You would think that actually there might be more of a, a similarity where you have these glosses, but. The, the glosses in the in the shepherd's calendar are all put kind of at the end, which is actually very unlike mass texts. So in some ways, they're more like dramatic texts than they are mass texts, which I think you might expect, maybe. Thank you to the actors. One thing that hearing uh, August uh, reply read out loud did is, for me, it reframed the way that I see that eclogue, because formerly, I always think, that is just a preface to get to Colin Clout's Sestina, right? Which is this kind of very much written and steady form, but in a way that hearing how funny it can be and imagining that as, um, you know, being generated in grammar school, being taught eclogues there, it, it sort of changes the way that we might understand uh, some of the performative aspects in, in the calendar. That, that feels like a really great place to stop. Um, thank you. Uh, can we say thank you uh, to our panelists and to our actors? Thanks for listening to this podcast from Spencer Poetry and Performance, a collaboration between the International Spencer Society and Shakespeare's Globe.